0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love, with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again.
1: Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And Thomas, COVID-19
2: is still with us. Been a long year, hasn't it? So where are we now? One, that this is more intense and spreading faster than we've seen before. Second, we really could push our hospital's bed capacity this time to its max. And three, the medical staff workers are exhausted. Could you take each one of those?
1: Sure, I'll be glad to. Yeah, let's first talk about the infection and the community spread. You know, we've heard from guests on this show about the R-naught factor, and it's running between 1.2 and one3 Simply put, the spread for COVID-19 continues. If that spread continues, you're going to have more positive cases. With more cases, you're going to have more people that are hospitalized. Even though our really courageous clinicians and healthcare heroes are doing a terrific job of treating the patients and keeping them comfortable, it is really a tough job. So, Thomas... The spread is here. We've got to tamp it down. We've got to wear our mask. We've got to do all the things to keep it from spreading. Secondly, yes, we do have capacity currently, but if we have the exponential growth that some of the models show because of the spread, those beds could quickly be used and we'd be in the midst of complete full surge capacity work. And then finally, workforce you are so right. Fatigue, these people have been working for the last eight months to save lives here in North Texas. We've got to do everything we can to keep people out of the hospital if possible so that they get a break and they're not churning patient after patient after patient
2: with COVID-19. Well, I have another friend of a friend. I mean, this is real somebody I know in Oklahoma, was in the hospital this past week with COVID-19 in his 30s with no comorbid conditions, blacking out, and shortness of breath. So this idea that I'm young or I'm healthy or I don't have comorbid conditions doesn't mean that you're going to get off scot-free. You're so right.
1: When I talk to the physicians, they say each COVID-19 patient is different. Yeah, there are many similarities, many of the symptoms, but how it impacts them is different patient by patient.
2: Steve and I will be back toward the end of the program with Dr. Robert Haley with a picture perfect description of how and why masks work. And it's even a story you could share with your friends who might not be so sold. That's coming up toward the end of the show and is on our podcast now, coming up next, we're going to talk about concussions, and we have a guest who is going to give us another visual that you will never forget about what a concussion is.
1: Yes, we do, and we're delighted. We've got Katherine Kester with us. She's a sports medicine physician at Texas Health in Allen, and she is going to break this down for us and explain it.
2: Dr. Kester, welcome to the human side of healthcare.
3: Thanks, guys, for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: You know, with sports injuries, and especially when you look at soccer and you look at contact sports like football, what would be signs and symptoms, especially that parents need to look for related to a concussion?
3: Absolutely. I think that uh, when we're talking about concussions and head injuries, the number one thing that we look for and notice on the field is any time that somebody takes a hard hit or that there's a hit to the head or even just a, a hard body blow sometimes can cause a concussion. The most common symptom that everybody thinks of is headache, but there are actually many, many different signs and symptoms that can indicate a concussion. It can be something like a loss of consciousness or blacking out for a few seconds, amnesia or not being able to remember what was happening before the injury or exactly what's going on some balance or behavior changes. A lot of the time we notice athletes feel foggy or slow or parents and coaches will notice that they feel more emotional or irritable. A lot of the times later on, we can see some sleep interruption or light or sound sensitivity. And a lot of athletes notice some visual problems as well. Um, A lot of these signs and symptoms aren't really specific to a concussion, meaning they could be caused by other medical issues or things. But anyone where a concussion is suspected, they definitely should be removed from sports and activities and then evaluated by a medical professional to decide what their next steps need to be.
1: So if you were talking to a group of parents, what advice do you have for them if they even suspect their child has a concussion?
3: Yeah, so I think that the number one first thing to do is to remove the athlete from participation in their sport, so they can't get re-injured or have a worsening injury. Um, I always advise that they immediately go to the emergency room or seek emergency care if they have a seizure, a significant or worsening headache, they're extremely drowsy or or unable to walk or look unsteady, Uh, if they're confused or have slurred speech, if there's any bleeding or any clear fluid coming from the ears or the nose. There's persistent vomiting or a large unresponsive pupil. Those to me are more significant signs of a serious head injury, and those need to be evaluated in the emergency room. But outside of that, um, you know, a kid who just has a, a headache and doesn't feel too great, remove them from sport and then get them an appointment with either a sports medicine physician or their primary care physician. Oftentimes, the earlier they get seen, 24 to 48 hours, the better that they do. Uh, The basic things that I recommend to a parent for the things that they can do at home before they get in to see a doctor um, are to rest both physically and mentally, not going to work, school, playing sports or doing anything that makes them feel worse, making sure that they get plenty of rest. They can have frequent naps, uh, avoiding any kind of screens like computer, phone, video games, television, things along those lines. Um, And then any kind of worsening symptoms or concerning symptoms where the parent feels like, this is just not my kid. Something doesn't feel quite right. Certainly always uh, having the emergency room as an option if they feel like things are not going well.
1: So Dr. Kester, let's pivot just a little bit. We've Mm -hmm. been talking about once you have a concussion, but let's talk a little bit about prevention. If you're an athlete, what are some of the things you can do to help prevent a brain injury?
3: Absolutely. So I think that number one, proper equipment helps prevent serious and significant brain injuries. Um, So things like wearing helmets in hockey and football can help prevent bleeding in the brain or a skull fracture, a very significant and severe brain injury. However, those kinds of equipment generally don't prevent concussions. Concussions are are caused by a shaking of the brain inside of the skull. So it's hard to put something outside of the brain to help protect something inside of the skull. Uh, But there have been some additional things that we have done to help prevent concussions like rule changes. So there have been rule changes in hockey and football to avoid targeting the head, and unnecessary and inappropriate physical contact. Uh, those kinds of rule changes have had a big difference in the concussion rates and significant brain injury rates that we've seen in, in very high contact sports like football.
2: And we mentioned it before when we come back, Dr. Kester is going to tell us about the concussion and the egg. Hmm. Stay with us. That's next on the human side of healthcare.
0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again.
2: And we're continuing our conversation on concussions with Dr. Katherine Kester, sports medicine physician from Texas Health Allen. And in a few minutes, she's going to give us a visual of a concussion that you will never forget.
1: Dr. Kester, let's assume you've treated an individual for a concussion. What are your recommendations or your determinations related to when that athlete can return to play? So
3: the biggest thing that I am looking for when we're trying to decide is someone ready to return to sports is that they feel better. And not just, well, I feel a little bit better, my headaches have improved, but I'm looking for that athlete says, I feel 100% better, I feel exactly like my normal self and that their parents also agree. So no more headaches or fogginess or things like that, but that they've also actually returned to school and returned to full participation in school, meaning taking tests and taking quizzes and performing to the best of their ability. I also look for a return to normal on their physical exam, meaning no balance issues or no other findings that would be concerning to me. And then once they've passed all of those steps, once everyone feels like everything is back to normal, that's when we start what's called the return to play process. So as soon as a kid feels great, we don't toss them right back out there on the soccer field or the football field. We slowly ramp up their physical activity in a uh, progressive manner to make sure that their brain and their body can tolerate that return. We first start with returning to things like running and jogging to make sure that their body can handle that before we return to drills and then finally non-contact practice and then a full contact
2: practice before we will say,
3: yes, the athlete has recovered from their concussion and they are good to go in terms of returning to full
2: competition. If you get a concussion, are you more susceptible to another one?
3: Yes. What we found is that an athlete who's had one concussion seems to be more likely to get another concussion in the
2: future.
1: You know, that's interesting because uh, I was talking to another physician that said they had a teenager that was playing football, and after two concussions, that was it, would not let the child play anymore.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a drastic move to, to make, but I think that that's a decision that's best made with an individual, their family, their doctor, and then potentially, you know, um, whether they want to continue with the sport or whether they feel like the risks of their sport, whether it's concussion or any other injury, should mean that they should medically retire from sport or whether they should choose a less risky sport. But that's completely an individual decision between uh, the patient, their family, and their doctor.
2: You know, we see these retired NFL players and wow, Are there some hidden dangers that we might be missing for younger people?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. And that's a a very common one that I get from parents all the time is, oh, my goodness, my kid has a concussion. Is this going to affect their future in any way? Um, And I think it's important to note that by definition, a concussion is a type of brain injury that we as medical professionals call transient, meaning it's short lived. It's going to recover in general concussions are not linked linked to what we're seeing in these retired NFL players, which is CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, as far as our research has has gotten us. I think it's also really important to remember that 30, 40 years ago, when these guys were playing uh, NFL football, that we treated concussions very differently, that concussions weren't necessarily well recognized or have the same kind of treatment protocols that we do now. I mean, even when I was playing high school sports twenty years ago, this was something where, oh, you got knocked out, but you can, you know, we'll have you set out for an inning or for a quarter and then we'll see how you feel and put you back in. Whereas today, something like that happens with an athlete and they are immediately removed from play. They're evaluated by an athletic trainer or another healthcare professional. They see a physician, they have to be cleared to return to the playing field. So the the way that we treat concussions has evolved rapidly in the last 10 to 20 years. And I don't think that we know yet how that's going to pan out in terms of the future of if you had a concussion when you were five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, how does that or does that not affect you 30 or 40 years down the line? I I just don't think that we've had enough time to see how people respond to the changes that we're making in the treatment
2: of head injuries now. Is that being studied to your knowledge?
3: Yes, it is being studied. They have several long-term studies where they're looking at kids who have concussion matched with kids who don't have concussion that also play sports and trying to look at the long-term impacts on, on their lives. The, the difficult part I will say is that you, you have all these athletes, but it's hard to track them for you know such a long period of time. There have been some studies that have looked back and have looked at athletes who had concussions versus athletes who didn't have concussions and how does that seem to impact their lives now that they are in their 50s and 60s. And for the most part, those studies have not really shown that just because you had a concussion, you have some kind of long-term brain injury. The area where we're seeing more of these long-term, significant, life-affecting neurological problems tends to be in those athletes that have these smaller repetitive hits that may not cause a concussion but a small force of repeated blows over many many years seems to be where the current thought process is in terms of oh this is what's causing the chronic traumatic encephalopathy or cte that a lot of these uh, nfl players have
2: now that makes total sense steve you were talking about the nfl what she just said i think nails what we see so visibly versus kids that, you know, the old moniker, well, you just got your bell rung.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you talked about the rule changes in the NFL, I heard when they moved the kickoff where it's not as many returns now that the incidental of concussions improved tremendously just by that one rule change.
3: Yeah, it's amazing how one rule change can have such a broad impact on on so many different people and so many different players. That's the most obvious one to all of us. But in hockey, they instituted a rule change about checking into the boards and that showed a significant decrease in concussions as well. And I'm always intrigued to see, not just from the concussion perspective, but if we are putting athletes in less dangerous situations overall and teaching them uh, appropriate rules and giving them appropriate guidance, I think that we'll see less injuries overall, not
1: only concussions. We think a lot about hockey. We think a lot about football. But do you see concussions in soccer? Absolutely.
3: And actually, women's soccer is the... Uh, sport, which has the second highest uh, number of concussions annually. I know the focus is a lot of the time on football, uh, because that's such a big sport here in Texas. But soccer is absolutely another biggie. And especially with the growing popularity of that sport, we're seeing more and more uh, soccer players, uh, unfortunately, who have concussions.
2: I heard somebody who specializes in concussions say, I would not let my kids or grandkids bounce a soccer ball off of their heads until they were up in their teenage years.
3: Yes, and they've actually changed the rules on that, that headers uh, are starting now a little bit later than they used to. I believe currently they're starting at, uh, the eight, at age 12 is when players are starting to learn how to do headers now.
2: If you were describing in very simple terms to some patients who were sitting on the table there and their child had suffered a concussion and you're going to tell them in just very simple language what a concussion is, what do you say?
3: So when I'm talking about just describing the basics of a concussion, I think it's always kind of helpful to think about something that we already know about. And the most common thing that everybody kind of knows how it works is an egg. And so an egg has this protective shell, protective coating. It's certainly not as big or as thick as our skull. But if you take an egg and you shake it up and shake it up and shake it up, imagine what happens inside of that egg and what's going on. We have the ability to, you know, then open that egg and see what's going on. But everything kind of gets mixed together. And that separation that you have from the yolk and the white of the egg similar to what you can imagine is going on inside of the brain when you're shaking it around inside of there. Um, And so that takes some time for things to kind of settle back out and for, for you to recover from that.
2: Excellent. That is a great analogy. What a visual. Thank you. It really is. Okay, then what about bruising?
3: So a lot of people will think about a concussion similar to a brain bruise, if you will. I caution people against talking, using that term bruise too much, but a lot of people want to talk about a bruise in a sense that, oh, I can see it on some type of picture, an x-ray, a CAT scan, an MRI, something along those lines, but by and large, concussions in general don't show up on any kind of traditional imaging that we would use in medicine. So an x-ray, a CAT scan, an MRI, those are not going to show any changes in the brain. Those would indicate a much more serious and significant brain injury than just a concussion.
2: This has been Dr. Katherine Kester. She's a sports medicine physician up in Allen at Texas Health Allen. Thank you so much, Dr. Kester. Have you ever, while you've been driving, just had somebody almost walk out in front of you? I did just the other day. We're going to talk about that next. Pedestrian safety. What can we do to improve it and how bad is it in North Texas? That's next on the human side of healthcare.
0: The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller.
1: And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. As you know, we talk about the human side of healthcare, and today really fits that because we're going to talk about safety, pedestrian safety. And you may not realize some of the accidents and some of the very traumatic situations we have here in North Texas. We've got a real expert that we're going to be talking with today, Carrie Lawson. Carrie is the Injury Prevention and Outreach Coordinator for Trauma Services at Medical City Dallas and also at Medical City Children's Hospital. And she also does work at the North Central Texas Trauma. Regional Area Council. And many of you may not know what that is, but trust me, they do an outstanding job helping us in emergencies, coordinating emergencies, and really being there for us, not only to support hospitals, but to support the entire community. Carrie, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You know, when we think in terms of pedestrian safety. To help our listeners kind of get a framework for this, how often are pedestrians actually injured by a motor vehicle?
4: A lot of people don't really realize just how um, seriously injured you can be as a pedestrian, but here at Medical City Dallas and Medical City Children's Hospital, on average a month we see anywhere from two to five seriously injured patients that came in from a pedestrian accident.
1: You know, Carrie, I was driving downtown the other day, and a gentleman must have been texting or doing something on his phone, and he actually walked right out in front of me. Do you see accidents where people are preoccupied with social media or texting?
4: Actually, that is one of the most common reasons we have for seeing pedestrian injuries. Um, It's very easy to be distracted as a pedestrian, and the biggest distraction that we have is usually right there in our pockets, our cell phone, our social media. We just don't want to be disconnected even for a little bit. You know, when you
1: think in terms of pedestrians, many people think adults, but children. And I referenced that you do work at Medical City Children's Hospital How frequently, say on a monthly basis, do you see children that unfortunately have been injured by an automobile?
4: Actually, more of our pedestrian accidents are with children than with adults. Children, just based on developmental level, uh, maturity level, we don't necessarily expect children to be looking out for their safety 24-7. So that's why it's really important as adults that one, we're monitoring the area that we're in, but we're also teaching the kids in our life how to be safe. So we expect that a five-year-old may not necessarily have the maturity to stop and think, oh, I should look both ways. That's why we need to do a good job and remind them.
1: So as our listeners are comprehending just how serious this is, let's pretend like, Carrie, you've got two listener groups you're talking to. First, you're talking to the children. Can you give them some safety tips on how they can help protect themselves? And then secondly, assume you're talking to the parents. Can you help the parents comprehend some just really good safety tips to protect pedestrians?
4: Absolutely. For kids, I definitely talk to them about being aware of where they are, I know that's really hard to do as a kid when you're distracted by so many other things, but really walking on the sidewalk where you're supposed to walk, looking both ways before you cross the street, and then most importantly, have an adult with you. Make sure an adult is there to help you, if, especially if it's a big street like we have a lot of here in Dallas. With adults, the biggest thing that I can talk to parents about is active supervision. This is not important just for pedestrian safety, but safety in general. When you are with your child, please be present. I know, again, it's very hard for us to be disconnected from social media and from our devices, but really having eyes on your child can prevent so many childhood injuries that if we could just do that, our numbers would go down significantly.
1: You know, speaking of the numbers going down, you gave me some background facts for this interview. And one of the things that I really noted In 2018, the highest number of pedestrian fatalities occurred in almost 18 years. Do you know why it was so many pedestrian accidents in 2018?
4: Uh, That is correct that we did uh, skyrocket from 1996 to 2018. A lot of the reasons are um, simply our drive time our vehicle miles traveled increased 14% from 2009 to 2018. So that means we're just in the car more often. We're driving more frequently. And then also with the advent of cell phones and the distraction, I know I keep talking about it, but really when we have distracted drivers, it just, our numbers increase so significantly. One thing of note that I do want to point out, in public health, our numbers generally lag about two years behind, that's pretty consistent across the board. However, one of the few good things that has come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is less people have been on the road and we've actually had less pedestrian accidents this year than in 2019, which is excellent, but there's still severe accidents that that we're seeing. So we're really wanting our drivers to pay attention and our pedestrians to be safe on the road.
1: You know, I mentioned you're in trauma services, and we've been focusing on pedestrians, but what are you seeing related to people that ride motorcycles, people that ride their bicycles? Has the injuries kind of outside of the vehicle increased or decreased? What about those types of people that are moving in or out and about?
4: Oh, gosh. Outside of the vehicle, accidents have increased just as much as pedestrian accidents have. We see a lot of uh, bicycle injuries, especially in children. We do see some in adults as well. One of the big things that we can do is make sure that you're wearing your protective gear. Always wear a helmet that fits appropriately, that is certified for wheeled use, and then um, replacing it if you're in an accident. And then motorcycles, gosh, we see some pretty significant injuries just because of the high rates of speed. And again, wear your protective gear every single time.
1: You know, Carrie, I was thinking as you were going through that, not only the accidents that occur outside the vehicle and people on bikes, but kind of flipping back and forth to pedestrians again. Do you have advice for people, especially if they're out at night, Uh, and things they can do to be protective, whether they're on a bicycle or whether they're walking or even if they're jogging, daytime and nighttime, I'm sure that's impacting some of the accidents.
4: Oh, it absolutely has, especially with this time change. We've seen a significant increase of early evening injuries. The best thing that you can do is be predictable. So if you're walking, walk on a sidewalk. That's where drivers expect that you will be. Um, If it's starting to get dark that dusk hour, make sure you're wearing very bright clothing or reflective clothing or even have a flashlight, some form of light source on you so that way you can be seen by drivers. And then, again, be predictable. If you need to cross the street, cross at a crosswalk and make sure that you're doing what you can to be aware as well. So always have your head on a swivel looking for those um, vehicles around you.
1: You know, I have a friend of mine that loves to jog, And he tells me one of the things that he does, especially when he has approaching vehicles, is he waves to the driver. And he does that to make sure the driver sees him. What do you think of those kinds of things to make sure the driver sees you?
4: I think that that is perfect. We always recommend making eye contact. But having that additional wave is just an additional, hey, I'm here, look at me Let's all stay safe. So I think that that's a great idea.
1: You know, we've been focusing on the pedestrians, the people riding their bikes, people riding their motorcycles. Let's pivot just a little bit. How can drivers take precautions and how can drivers take advice from you to minimize pedestrian or outside of the vehicle accidents?
4: Oh, drivers can do so much to help protect the environment. Uh, Really being cautious, remembering that you are in a very large machine that can cause a lot of damage and be respectful of that power that you are wielding. Uh, Yield to pedestrians. Again, I talk about pedestrians always having their head on a swivel, but the driver should also be looking out and making sure that there are no pedestrians in the area. Doing things like simply following the speed limit, slowing down when you're coming up to a crosswalk to make sure that there's no one there, And really not being distracted. So again, putting your devices away and then not driving impaired can really, really help.
1: You know, Carrie, if you had the entire listening audience in a room with you right now, what would be a message you would deliver to them that I haven't asked in the form of a question?
4: Honestly, the biggest thing that I can say is be aware Us as people, we can really take care of each other just by having our eyes open and being aware of the environment that we're in. And really, if we're just taking a moment to ourselves and paying attention to our our surroundings, we can actually prevent a lot of things from going wrong. So if we can just take the moment, enjoy the time that we get to be outside, that we get to enjoy the fresh air, that we get to enjoy the exercise that we're doing, rather than being distracted we can have a happy, healthy, and safe time.
2: Carrie Lawson from Medical City Dallas and Medical City Children's Hospital. Thank you so much for sharing those great insights. And when we come back, a physician we were interviewing for another segment was on her bike and hit by a car.
5: Cities just aren't built around cyclists and people aren't friendly to cyclists. And so that I think that danger always exists. So you just have to be as cautious as you can and you choose whether or not you're gonna change your life out of that type of fear, you're going to keep going forward.
2: Her riveting story and seven month journey back, next on the human side of healthcare.
0: We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever changing healthcare environments. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO, Stephen Love, and co-host, Thomas Miller.
1: Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're going to continue our discussion on pedestrian safety, interviewing another guest for another segment for another show. I was informed by this physician, she was riding her bike and got hit by a car seven years
2: ago and sustained serious injuries, too, from a distracted driver. Let's let Dr. Vivian Demas, she's with Medical City Children's Hospital. Let's let her explain.
5: Yeah, I was hit on a bicycle in Arizona on a Friday afternoon at three o'clock, as day, by someone who just wasn't paying attention.
1: Did you sustain, you know, very, very serious injuries?
5: Oh, yeah. I spent um, a couple nights in the trauma unit. I had a uh, bleeding in my brain and I had multiple fractures, lots of burns, put me out of work for about seven weeks at home and then a long rehabilitation process. It took me about seven months to get to where I could take my first steps sort of jogging on a treadmill again after that.
1: I am so sorry. You know, that's amazing. The, the segment that uh, we worked on talked about how drivers get distracted. They look at cell phones they don't pay attention, and you're an example of that.
2: Was this driver on a cell phone?
5: So she wasn't on a cell phone, but I, I was the first cyclist in a row of cyclists, and she said that she uh, was switching lanes and inadvertently turned her wheel to the right. I don't know because she, I, you know, I didn't see her coming, but my cyclist friends who were behind me said it looked like she took a right turn into my back wheel.
2: You know, and I'm sorry doesn't get you those seven years, really that or seven months, really that year back, does it?
5: No, no. I think that's the most frustrating part of it is that you're doing everything you can. You're in a bike lane. You're wearing visible gear. We're um, riding single file. You're in, and, you know, someone hits you, and then they get to go on with their, their day and their life, and you're left picking up the pieces.
2: Did it reframe your advocacy for a bicycle? did you change anything or are you back on it?
5: I'm back on it. You know, it took me a long time to get over the feeling of um, somewhere between anger for feeling like someone had taken away something from me that I loved and then feeling guilty as a mother and a wife of taking risks that could potentially result in my death and, and, and leave two children, you know, without their mother and My husband widowed, and so our family actually had to go through a bit of a process. So I do things a little bit differently, uh, but my husband was very supportive, and he told me that I couldn't let her take something from me that I loved so much. And so we just redid, you know, you do as much as you can to take yourself out of danger. You can never take yourself fully out of danger, obviously, but, you know, minimizing time on streets and and doing all the things that you you know, where cars are driving and, and doing all the things that you can To keep yourself as safe as possible but you know cities just aren't built around cyclists and people aren't friendly to cyclists and so that I think that danger always exists so you just have to be as cautious as you can and you choose whether or not you're going to change your life out of that type of fear or you're going to keep going forward but it's a very tough decision
1: well thank you Dr. Demas what an incredible story Thomas
2: you know, I, I, as she was summarizing, bicycles, cities don't mix. People are not friendly to bicycles because they slow people down. So they do get angry. I used to ride a lot, Steve, and I've throttled back. So you don't ride like you used to? Look, I'm in my 60s. I measured the risk reward. I mean, if I had the kind of injury that she had, I might not survive it or it would tear me up for the rest of my life. She's right the cities are not friendly to bicycles. And let me tell you something, whenever you encounter a car as a bicyclist, the score is always car one, bicyclist zero.
1: Yeah, you're right. You know, speaking of uh, things that we're having to deal with, let's pivot just a little bit, Thomas. Next week is Thanksgiving, and even though 2020 has been a difficult year, we still have a lot to be thankful for. However, We just can't let our guard down. We can't let COVID-19 dominate the Thanksgiving cycle by community spread.
2: I want to tell you about those friends of mine that got it on the RV tour. I have more information. There were three couples, three RVs traveling together, and they got caught up in the herd mentality. They ended up going to restaurants. These two would not have gone to restaurants on their own. They did because they were in the group. The group moved in that direction. Then they went to this tourist site and they were down under in this mall thing and they said half the people were not wearing masks. And again, the group moved them in that direction. So the point is they probably got COVID-19 and it took three weeks out of their lives, but they got the thing because they were moved by the scope of a group. And I think that's a very important thing. If we get together now... We need to wear masks. And we're going to play this clip from Dr. Robert Haley. We had it on a previous show, but it is so good about the guinea pigs. This will put a visual in your mind that if people you are with this Thanksgiving are not wearing masks, tell them about the guinea pigs.
6: Guinea pigs are very much like humans, that they're very susceptible to COVID. And so they had like, would put two cages right next to each other with a little very light breeze blowing from one cage to the next. And in the first cage, they put some Guinea pigs that had COVID and became very sick. And um, when the study was over, their lungs were examined and they had severe lung pathology. The lungs were really kind of destroyed by this, by the virus. And then they put a second cage, you know, uh, next to it with healthy guinea pigs to see if they would become infected by the air coming from that first cage to the second. And sure enough, those second get those guinea pigs, the healthy guinea pigs became infected. Almost all of them became very sick and uh, most of them died and, and then had severe lung pathology. Then they put basically a surgical mask material on the healthy guinea pigs cage, sort of simulating putting a mask on the healthy people and Sure enough, a few of the guinea pigs got sick from the sick ones, but it took much longer for them to get sick. So their immune system had time to kick in and and protect them. And none of them died and they had very mild illness and very mild pathology in their lungs. And then they did a third time. This time they put the mask material on the cages of the sick animals. Okay. And repeated the experiment. And now, the healthy animals only like a a tiny number of them got sick and they were just mildly sick. The illness again was delayed and there was no lung pathology in those. So what this proves beyond a doubt is that a mask is very efficient in protecting those. if If the sick person is masked, it's protected by two ways. One, it makes you get less virus. You're exposed to less virus. And, and because you've got a lower uh, number of viruses, your body is able to handle it. So, you, so it takes longer for those viruses to, to get through your lungs and make you sick. And so your immune system has time to respond. So you're going to have a milder infection. If you are masked or if the sick person around you is masked, you're going to have a, if you even get infected at all, you will get a less severe infection and you will survive it it's when both are not masked that we have these big spreader events uh, like we've been seeing lately where lots of people get sick and they're very sick for a long time. Uh, Also, if you have it, if have a mask on, but it's not covering your nose, you are protecting those around you, but you're not protected because you breathe in through your nose and you infect others by through your mouth. You see, so just having it on your mouth, you're doing a nice thing for those around you, but you're not protected. So to me, that is a very uh, dumb position to be wearing a mask with, but not covering your nose. You're, you're leaving yourself as a setup.
1: You know, Thomas, that was, uh, that was some segment on those guinea pigs. And all kidding aside, we have a lot to be thankful for, but we have a lot we need to do. And that is wear a mask, physical distance, wash our hands. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving.
2: And to you, sir, as well.
1: Thanks a lot. I appreciate that.
2: And coming up next week, we're going to parlay a national story right into healthcare as women are continuing to prominently rise in the field. We're so blessed
1: to have the women in the positions they're assuming, and they're doing an excellent job. And we're delighted that we're going to be talking to Dr. Vivian Demas as she explains to us as a woman her career in healthcare.
2: That's next week here on the human side of healthcare on 1080KRLD
1: and radio.com.